Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right. If you have a Bible, let's open it to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. That's the first book, gospel in the New Testament. And chapter 28 is the very end of that book. As I've mentioned in the last few weeks, we're taking a break out of our long series through the letter to the Roman church, Romans, this summer to handle a few topics and issues that I think are very important in the life of our church. And this morning, we're going to look at baptism, what water baptism is. Now, I think instinctively some of you may think, oh, it's kind of a topical sermon on baptism. This is going to be kind of boring. I hope that's not the case. I hope that you see the gospel afresh and that we are helped as a church. Think about this very important, very important command that Jesus has given the local church and and Christians. But as you're finding Matthew 28, we're going to read the end there of Matthew 28, and then we're going to scan the New Testament and, and Lord willing, have an understanding of what baptism is biblically. As you're doing that, let me me mention that next week I'm going to be out of town. Robert's going to be preaching a message from the Old Testament. Uh, This, actually tomorrow, uh, the pastors are going to Dallas, Texas. We're going to the Southern Baptist Convention (coughs) annual meeting, and so... um, Uh, We'll be gone for a few days, and then they'll come back, and then I'll continue on uh, to actually another foreign country, uh, California, where I will visit my family, and uh, I'm going to spend about a week with my parents there in in my hometown, and so it'll be good to see my folks. And so Robert will be preaching next Sunday, and then the following Sunday, the last Sunday of June, we're going to uh, commission and send the core team of our church plant, Mid Tree Church, out. It will be their final Sunday with us. And we will now preach a message about why we are doing what we're doing and commission them to gospel work up in Harris County. And so that'll be a, a, a joyful and sad uh, Sunday as well, as, as of course we'll be together in the same area, but we'll, we'll miss seeing each other on Sundays. And then they'll start meeting in July. Uh, And then in July, on Sunday mornings, we're going to do a short little series on Jesus on the Christian life. And look at a few scenes from the gospel, where Jesus, the gospels, where Jesus explains some very important aspects of what it means to be a believer and a follower and a community of Christians together. And then in August, we'll get back into Romans chapter 9. Let me pray now before I read Matthew 28 and ask the Lord to help us have a clearer vision of what it means to be a believer in community and the sign, the symbol of baptism that God has given to mark that off. And as I pray for us to understand that better, let's pray also for Korean Christians and the church in Korea. There is obviously a very uh, publicized summit going on in Singapore between the leaders of our country and North Korea, which is, which is um, very historic. All politics aside, whatever the goals are, whatever the motivations are of, of, of the countries involved, uh, I want us to pray that whatever happens geopolitically, that, that spiritually this might be the beginnings of an open door for the gospel in North Korea and for those, those uh, people there that have been living as Christians underground and maybe that the gospel would take root in a great way in North Korea in the years to come. Let's pray. Father, we ask your your grace to us now as we open up your word and we think about what it means to be a believer, what it means to, to proclaim the gospel as an individual and as a church and why and, 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 and for what purpose you've given baptism to be a sign of that, how you've intended it to mark your people off for the sake of evangelism. And we we pray that as we scan your scriptures that you'd help us, that even people that are in this room that don't know Christ would would hear a clear picture of what it means to follow Jesus, and that they would be baptized and be part of a a believing community, the local church. I pray for believers in this room that we'd be strengthened and stirred and we'd fall deeper in love with the bride of Christ as a result of our time together. And we pray for our brothers and sisters in the Korean Peninsula. We thank you for the church in South Korea. As, as large as it is, we pray for its health 
And we pray for your grace upon it. And we do pray for believers in North Korea. There are not many from all accounts, but there are some underground that have been living there for decades under the fear of death and persecution. We pray that what's ever going on politically in this summit, we pray that one of the things that you would be doing in this is opening up the doors for the preaching of the gospel in North Korea so that the Christians there already can be strengthened and fortified and released for gospel ministry. We pray that this would result in, in many, many conversions and souls being saved in that beautiful place. Help us now as we, as we stare at your scriptures. Lord, make us more like Jesus. We don't just want to play church in the south. We, we need to meet with you this morning. We need you. We, we need to be more like Christ. We need to understand your word better. We need to take the Christian life more seriously. We're, we're, we're frivolous people. We're petty people. We're fickle. And we're distracted. And we need your grace this morning. I need your grace this morning. Help us, I pray now, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, let me read the end of Matthew chapter 28. It's a beautiful text where Jesus gives his disciples and, and I would argue the whole believing church that will be, be planted by these disciples, apostles, in the beginning of the book of Acts. He gives them a great mission, really a great commission, a commissioning of what they are to do as believers in him. And so starting in verse 18, I realize we're just sort of parachuting down into this text, but we're looking at the whole idea of baptism in the New Testament this morning. So let me, let's start here. Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, so this is after Jesus's life and crucifixion, death and resurrection, and he has appeared for approximately 40 days to over 500 people and is now about to ascend to heaven where, as we have been reading about in Romans chapter 8, he is at the right hand of God, even now interceding for his people. I can't, I can't get over Romans 8 if you haven't noticed. Verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So let's just look briefly at that text before we dive into to this. I think what Jesus is clearly saying there is he's commissioning the church to go into all nations. And by the way, that word nations, don't think of it as geopolitical nations like we know of now. That, that word nations, I, I think in the original language, is maybe better understood as ethnic groups, people, groups. And Jesus is saying, go into all the world and make disciples. He's not saying that we, in and of ourselves, can actually make or turn people into Christians. But what he's saying, is we, as we've been reading about and studying in, in the book of Romans up to this point, that it's by God's grace that any unbeliever who is dead in their sins and separated from God would be made a believer. And that is God's sovereign grace and choice. But the means by which a person becomes a follower of Jesus is through the means, the instrumentality of the preaching and the sharing and the communicating of the gospel in and through God's people who are on this earth. And so what he's saying is, is live in such a way, followers, believers, live in such a way that God would use your life together, your sharing, your teaching, your preaching, your proclaiming, and your lives that match and embody the gospel that you preach and believe. Do this in a way that God would use that to bring salvation to people from every ethnic group on the earth. And then he says, after that, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. In other words, do this after the salvation of all these people that you are being used by God to reach. Then do the hard work of rolling up your sleeves and living together in community where discipleship happens. And behold, he says the last sentence there, I'm with you. In fact, he's given us his Holy Spirit that indwells us. And I am with you always to the end of the age. And so Jesus is clearly, the the last thing he says before he ascends to heaven is this great commission where he says, preach the gospel and then baptize those who have trusted in Christ and then do life together. So if it's the last thing that Jesus has said to his disciples before he ascends to heaven, it's important. So I want us to think about this morning what baptism is. I want to give you two thoughts and then we're going we're gonna to look at each. Two, just two thoughts, two truths about the purpose of baptism Biblically, the first is this, is that baptism makes the gospel visible. Baptism makes the gospel that we so love and preach every Sunday here visible. And then secondly, baptism makes the church, the believing community, visible. So those are the two points that we're going to look at this morning. Baptism makes the gospel visible, and baptism makes the church visible. First, How does baptism make the gospel visible? The first way that that we see in the New Testament that the gospel, that the baptism makes the gospel visible is by it publicly declares a person, an individual's allegiance to Christ. So let's look at Acts chapter 2. So these early disciples, these apostles have received this mission from Jesus that we just read about. They wait for his presence, his Holy Spirit to be poured onto them, out onto them in, the, the, uh, the, in Jerusalem, in the upper room there. He does that. The Holy Spirit pours out on the early church. Peter gets up in the middle of this great festival, this feast, and he preaches the gospel with thousands of people hearing him. And the Lord's grace and mercy falls on this crowd. And literally thousands of people are converted at this sermon on the day of Pentecost by Peter. And and people, this early church is formed. People are believing. And then at the end of verse of chapter 2, there's this this beautiful story of then what happens now. So look at verse 37 of Acts chapter 2. Now when they heard this, meaning the crowd, hearing Peter's sermon, which is essentially the gospel, he walks them through the gospel, When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? In other words, we've heard the gospel and it's penetrated our hearts. We realize that we need to be reconciled to God. What should we do? Essentially, these people are asking, we believe what you're saying. How do we become Christians? that's, That's what's going on here. Verse 38, and Peter said to them, Repent, in other words, turn away from trusting in yourself, turn away from coddling sin, turn away from unbelief, repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. And so what Peter says to them is he says, repent, turn from trusting in yourself, put your hope in Jesus. We've been through that often as we've been walking through the gospel. And then he says, and be baptized. In other words, publicly declare your allegiance to Jesus. He's, he's putting those two things together as, as kind of one action in the life of a new believer. Turn from your sin. This is a personal, personal, inward work of the heart that God must do on a person. And then the next thing that a new believer is to do is to publicly declare that allegiance to Christ. And this would have been very significant in a Roman empire where allegiance to the emperor was very important. And then in the context of this Jewish subcommittee, uh, sub, sub, subculture, where allegiance to the, to the Torah, to the Old Testament, would, would have 
had a lot of pressure on these, on these Jewish believers. And Peter is saying, go public with this personal decision. In other words, stand up and allow yourselves to be publicly identified with Christ and his people. This is, this is what it means to be a Christian, to not just a personal, inward, private decision, but a public proclamation that you are now one of his people and part of his body. The second thing that, that and reason, way that the gospel, or that baptism makes the gospel visible, is that it portrays the believer's union with Christ. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of mini picture of the gospel itself. Now, we can't get too far away from Romans in our little summer break from Romans. So to show you this, go, go to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And I want you to see this text that I think is a, is a kind of mini theology of baptism itself and, and what baptism is, what it means, what it means to picture and portray. And this is what the Apostle Paul says about it in Romans chapter 6. I'm going to start reading in verse 3, but just to give you a little background, remember Paul has been establishing the gospel and he's, he's been saying that we're saved by faith, not by our works. And that a person is justified not by what they do or don't do, but by what Christ has done. And really the only way that a person can ever be justified is through God giving them a new heart, which would give them new desires, which would give them new actions, and they follow Jesus. But, lest anyone should be confused, Paul is saying, we're not made right with God by our deeds or by our actions, but by Christ's obedience, His actions, His faithfulness, and our faith and trust in Him. And so that was bringing up the understandable objection then if if we're not saved by what we do does it even really matter what we do and Paul is saying well yes of course it matters what we do because the Christian life is about receiving a new heart that then enables us to follow Jesus but at this point of his argument he's basically saying we're not saved by our deeds we're saved by Christ's life his work and faith in that and now in Romans chapter 6, he's answering the objection. Well, then what does it matter what we do? And he says the reason is, is because there's more going on in your salvation than just cognitively agreeing that Jesus died for you. He's saying that if you are a believer, you've been united with Christ. You were dead. God made you alive. And he united you together with Christ. And so in verse 3 of Romans chapter 6, he says this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And so do you see what Paul is doing here? He's linking Baptism with union, participation, our identification with what Christ has done. In fact, at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus himself was baptized. Not because Jesus needed to be saved. He's the Savior. But Jesus is baptized as a picture of what he is about to do in his life death, and resurrection for his people. And so what is Paul saying here? He's saying that baptism is a believer's union. It's a declaration of how we are with Christ in our salvation. So what has Jesus done for us? Well, in the Old Testament, and why would baptism be a picture of this? In the Old Testament, water is often a means of God's, of God's judgment. In fact, in, in the, uh, the beginning of the book of Genesis, we see that in the flood, that God brought the floodwaters of his judgment on the world. He judged the world with water. 
And, and we see that in, in Exodus too, when, when God is rescuing his people from Egypt in the Exodus, he parts the water and Israel goes through the dry seabed there and then he rescues Israel by judging Egypt with the floodwaters of the Red Sea of his wrath. And what's happening when Jesus is baptized is it's, it's Jesus picturing his work on the cross. Jesus on the cross is bearing the floodwaters, metaphorically speaking, of God's wrath for his people. So Jesus is bearing God's judgment for us. He's dying for us. Do you see that? Friends, that's the, the heart of the gospel. In fact, we, we sang it this morning when we, when we sang that the wrath of God is satisfied. Jesus on the cross is not merely dying as an expression of God's love for us, as important as that is, but on the cross, Jesus is bearing, satisfying, extinguishing the wrath of God, the floodwaters, so to speak, of God's judgment on his people. And he is drying out those floodwaters. Charles Spurgeon says that Jesus on the cross drank damnation dry. And so in baptism, when Jesus is baptized... He is, he is, in a sense, picturing how he is dying for us. He's going down in the water. And I don't know if you know this, but humans cannot live underwater. Water drowns. We can't breathe water. We will die in water. And Jesus is picturing his death on our behalf. But... Jesus hasn't just died for us, even though he was innocent and didn't need to die. He has defeated death, and so Jesus doesn't stay at the bottom of the ocean of God's wrath. Jesus gets up out of the water, and he is resurrected in victory, and now is the king and has the keys to life and death. And so Jesus comes up out of the floodwaters of God's wrath and has defeated sin, death, and the grave. Now, what is Paul saying here about that in Romans 6? He's saying that if you're a believer, this is the most fundamentally true thing about you. That God has made you alive. He's taken out your dead heart. He's put in a new heart. He's given you the gift of faith whereby you have beheld and trusted in Christ and are no longer trusting in yourself. And now you're united. You're, you're yoked with Christ. And now your baptism as a believer is a picture how Jesus died for you and rose again for you. And so when a believer goes in those baptismal waters at Crosspoint, what they're doing in their baptism is not just mere Christian tradition, not just a kind of rite of passage, but they, do you see this? They are portraying the story of their conversion, that I am in Christ, that Jesus bore God's death for me, and so therefore, I don't need to face God's judgment because Jesus did for me. And I'm coming up out of that water because just as Jesus has been raised to new life, he has now raised me and now I am alive. Friends, that gives a picture of the gospel to an onlooking world. And that's why we have people write out there, the way we practice it here is we have people write out their testimonies at Crosspoint and have a friend read that testimony as they are standing in the baptismal pool there to, to preach the gospel, really, in that person's life as to how they came to faith in Jesus. And it gives a kind of picture. One writer puts it this way. He says, baptism renders repentance and faith visible. It gives the believer, the church, and the onlooking world something to look at. Really, in a sense, baptism, when it's 
biblically practiced removes the need for this uniquely American phenomenon of the altar call. And I would argue that the altar call came into popularity in the church in America in the 1900s really because of the impulses of the church growth movement where we just wanted people to be added to the church. And so instead of going through the really more rigorous process of making sure that people understand the gospel and what it means to be baptized and follow Jesus, we just have people bow their head, close their eyes, and raise their hands. And that's not a public proclamation of faith. What baptism is intended to be that. So it portrays a believer's union with Christ. And then, friends, it pictures, it pictures a new life. It pictures then a person who has declared their allegiance to Christ and is portraying their, their union, their belief, their, 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 their union with Christ. It's, it's picturing that they are now living a new life. We looked at Hebrews 10 briefly last week. Let me read a few verses from it again in verses 19 through 22. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through the flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, what's he saying up to that point? He's just basically saying, because Jesus has represented us before God and has made access and reconciliation with God by his perfect life, death, and resurrection possible, because he's done that through his flesh, in other words, his perfect life and substitutionary death, since we have this great high priest, this representative before us, before a holy God, in in response to that, verse 22, he says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And in this Hebrew writer's minds, this idea of being washed with pure water is a reference, I think, biblically to what baptism also portrays is that not only is it Jesus bearing the floodwaters of God's wrath, but in a sense it's a washing. Not that... Baptism washes us from our sins. Clearly only God can do that. But baptism represents that God does, in fact, purify us. He washes our body with the pure waters of what baptism is saying and communicating to an onlooking world. So, so one, the baptism makes the gospel visible. don't know that I've said anything particularly controversial at this point, but let's get to point two. Baptism makes the church visible. It makes the church visible. Baptism is not meant to symbolize merely a person's personal faith, but it is also meant to publicly proclaim that person's incorporation into the body of Christ, the church. So we are Americans, right? And we are ruggedly individualistic. And I think that there are some strengths to that. Do you realize, do you realize, a little side note here, do you realize every culture has its strengths and weaknesses? I love when Pastor Raphael comes from Uganda and he sort of chides us as Americans because we, we just always want to get things done, you know? And he's like, man, these Americans just wear me out with all of their stuff. And he chastens us with that, doesn't he? So in many ways... American individualism has been used by God for productivity. I get that. But there's certainly a downside of that. We, it's all about us and me and my personal private life. And friends, that cuts against the grain of what the New Testament and the whole Bible teaches about what it means to be a believer in community. We just read from Romans 6 that when we are baptized... It is a picture of our union with Christ. And what does Christ have? He has a body. The church. The whole New Testament is filled with allusions, metaphors of Christ. Is the church of Christ being called the body of Christ. And so, just, just think about it with me for a second. To be joined to the head means that you're also joined to the body. You, you cannot be baptized 
and not also love and be part of a local church biblically. Do you see that? That that's one of the primary reasons why baptism is meant to be so public and part of the local church. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. He's again linking here this idea of baptism and our, our, our connection with the body of Christ. In verse 13, or verse, verse, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says, For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So there I think he's speaking about the spirit baptism, which I think means the the, the making of a Christian, when we're, we're, our hearts are dead and the Spirit comes and makes us alive and baptizes us into what? The body of Christ. And, and I think clearly water baptism, which is a portrayal of spirit baptism, which I read in the New Testament to mean conversion, is a proclamation of the fact that we have not only been joined to Christ, but we've been joined to his body, each other. Now this is where it gets kind of hard because it's really easy to be connected to Jesus. It's like a Doobie Brothers song. Jesus is sure all right with me, but I don't know about all his folks. Baptism yokes us to not only the head, but to the body. That's what baptism is intended to do. It's meant to... Think, think with me here. I want, you to, I want you to follow my reasoning. It's meant to kind of mark off God's people. It's meant to, in a sense, put a fence around and identify who God's people are. Not, hear me on this, not for the sake of exclusion of the world, but for the sake of clarity so that the church is clear about who is and isn't a Christian so that they can live as salt and light to an onlooking world so that their corporate life together would be an evangelistic witness to an onlooking world. Do you see that? And baptism is meant to be a kind of border around the church, not for the sake of exclusion, not for the sake of judgment, not for the sake of withdrawing from the world, but for the sake of evangelism that we would clarify to the world who is and isn't a Christian. Do you see that? Think of it this way. It's a kind of, it's a kind of team jersey that, is, that the church issues to believers. It's a kind of community assurance Issuance, where we are saying to a person when they are trusting in Christ, yes, we believe that what you believe is what the Bible says it means to be a Christian, and so we're going to give you a team jersey. It's yours. You, we believe you're a Christian, and you're now with us representing Christ to the world. Now, in one sense, hear me on this, we are part of the great, grand, universal body of Christ, the, the, the church universal. So we are just as connected to Christians in Uganda or India or Mexico or, or Chechnya or North Korea as, as we are to our brothers and sisters in this room. We're part of the great grand body of Christ. But the Bible is full of exhortations about how we are to live out our belief in Jesus together and we can't carry out these commands and imperatives about the Christian life with Christians on the other side of the world. So God gives us the local church. We're to live together in a kind of network of accountable relationships, and that is to be clarified through water baptism. That's the picture. That's the sign to an onlooking world. Team Jersey is an illustration I just used. Think of it this way. It's a, it's a kind of passport. I am an American because well, I, I was born in California. Actually, that is part of America. So um, some of you, I was just about to say I was born, I'm an American because I was born in California. And some of you are about to doubt my citizenship. But I, I'm an American because I was born in America. I have a passport. That passport does not make me an American. You understand that, right? 
In fact, there are probably many people in this room who don't yet have a passport, but that doesn't mean you're not an American or a citizen of whatever country you were born in. You're, you're, you're a citizen by birth. And then the passport is a kind of proclamation to the other nations of the world that this is where his citizenship lies. I know analogy is perfect, of course, but that's kind of how baptism functions, right? Baptism doesn't, don't misunderstand me, baptism is as important as it is, it does not save. It's not a work that we have to do to be saved. Only Christ saves us. The thief on the cross at Jesus' crucifixion had not been baptized, and he trusted in Jesus in the last moments of his life, and Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. But baptism is a kind of declaration to onlooking nations, onlooking peoples, unbelievers, that this person is a believer in Jesus. Think of it this way. Think, think of the church. Think of the, local, think of the body of Christ universal, then broken up into all these thousands and thousands of local churches around the world. Think of each local church as a kind of embassy that has a little piece of ground in a foreign nation, okay? So think about how we are representatives of the kingdom that is coming, the kingdom of God. Jesus came and he established the church and he established his people. He formed the church here in his, in his first coming. And now he has gone back to heaven and he has promised to come back. And when he comes back, he's bringing his kingdom, which has been established. He's consummating. He's bringing it in full measure where his kingdom will finally and fully reign forever. But for now, the local church is a kind of embassy that exists in this kingdom of this world. And we are citizens of the kingdom of God, but we still live here in this kingdom of this world. And how do we know who is and who is not citizens of this kingdom? Well, of course, we know it by our personal testimony and our faith in Jesus. But it's clarified, it's identified through baptism. And baptism becomes kind of like a fence around that embassy ground of the local church. Now that fence is low and it has many doors because the people that are citizens of the kingdom that is coming that are marked off by baptism do life in this fallen kingdom every day. And their regular life as missionaries, as citizens of this embassy of the church, the kingdom of God, who still live in this fallen world, they go out and amongst and do life and they constantly are telling people, come, come, come and believe in Jesus and be baptized and be part of this kingdom that is coming. That's how baptism is to function. It's to clarify who's part of that kingdom and who isn't for the sake of evangelism. Baptism clarifies who the people of God are. Now, friends, in one sense, the church is invisible. All those that are ever trusting in Jesus all around the world regardless of whether they're members of the church, regardless of whether they've been baptized. If there was a great meteor to hit this world and we were all to perish, every Christian, everybody that's believing in Jesus would be with him forever. And in fact, if you walked into this room this morning and you're not yet believing in Jesus, I plead with you that you do believe in Jesus and be with him forever. But baptism is meant to make that invisible internal confession visible. It's meant to make the invisible church, the one that merely exists in here, visible. And it doesn't mean just coming to church. Many people will come to church that are maybe not believers or figuring out the gospel. Baptism is a way of clarifying to an onlooking world what it means to be a Christian. So if you're a Christian, you should be baptized. You should wear the team jersey of baptism, which helps to clarify to an onlooking world what it means to be a Christian. A few implications before we conclude. I think this means clearly that we should be very thoughtful as a church about who we baptize, especially in an easy believism world. We should be very careful. We should be thoughtful about how we baptize people. 
there are churches, and this is a, a kind of, a kind of uh, fad, I think, that's going on in, in many American churches that are very, they're very um, non-deliberate with how they do baptism. And they just kind of, anybody wants to be baptized, come on down. And although I understand the impulses of kind of grace and opening wide the baptismal pools, just wanting to encourage people, the problem with that is that you, we run the danger of giving people false assurance just because they emotionally want some experience at the end of a church service without sitting down with a person and making sure that they understand the gospel. Now you say, well, Brad, what about in Acts chapter 2 where there was all these people that were baptized? Well, I think what's going on there is a specific work of the Spirit as the Word of God is preached through the apostle Peter. But I think as we see the history of the church develop, we see the early church taking great care, great care over who they would baptize. Because you don't just give person the assurance of the community that they're trusting in Christ just because they're merely attending. You want to sit down with people and make sure that they understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Another practical thing that flows out of this is when should a a person be baptized? How soon after their salvation should they be baptized? We think that the mechanism by which we have, we have put in place here to ensure that people understand the gospel and what it means to be baptized is we sit down and we want to talk to you and we want to think about, okay, what's your understanding of the gospel? Tell us how you became a Christian. And then we think that clearly the Christian life is to be lived in community. And so we want to link very strongly a person's baptism and their participation or membership in the local church. We think those two things go together. If baptism is meant to mark off who this local community of believers is, doesn't it make sense that we don't just baptize people that are just kind of residents of the city because they just want baptism? It should be linked with life together in the believing community. This leads to another question. At what age should a person be baptized? Well, we are a Baptist church, and so we believe that, that biblically baptism should be applied to those who trusting in Christ. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in just a moment before we conclude. But many churches like us, I think, baptize people at way too young of an age. This would be Baptist churches that believe in believer's baptism sometimes baptize children at very, very young ages out of good intentions. Some of you were maybe baptized as a very young children or have had your children baptized as very young children, say six, seven, eight, nine years of age at their first sort of proclamation of the gospel. And in one sense, I understand this impulse. But in another sense, I think it, it can sometimes short circuit a child's understanding of the gospel and their full understanding of what baptism is meant to portray. Baptism is meant to portray, as we've said here, not only your personal faith, but your connection to the church. And many times, a seven or eight or nine-year-old child is merely trying to please their parents, which is a good thing. That's a good thing. But at that age, they may not fully understand what the gospel is. I'm not saying that a young child cannot be truly converted and born again. But we think it's wise to encourage the faith of the young child encourage them for, for their proclamation and in, in trust in Jesus, but to withhold baptism until they are old enough to understand more what it means to be a member to where they, they give some sort of fruit and evidence that they are weathering culture in the world and they're trusting in Christ. Now, I think here at Crosspoint, we've probably been a little too cautious we're, we're hesitant, we have been hesitant to, to baptize people before kind of mid-teens. In fact, really in the church, in, uh, since the Reformation, Baptist churches like us up until the 1900s didn't baptize anybody before the age of 18. And not only until really the American church in the 1900s did they start baptizing people much younger. I think maybe we've been a little too cautious. And we want to cultivate an earnestness and a good and biblical and teach better on this amongst our, our, our young people and our teenagers. And we want to see, we think more 
middle school, teenage type age people are, are ready for baptism. And we want to cultivate that. And to that end, we're going to do a few classes and Tyler's going to teach on it and Robert's going to teach on it. And if people want to be baptized, whether they are teenagers or older at Crosspoint, we, we, we are going to teach more consistently on that through classes. And if that's you, we want you to come and keep your ears peeled for some of these, these baptism classes that we're going to have in this summer and in the coming months. And then finally, some of you may be asking, well, what about infant baptism? Now, I know that we have some brothers and sisters in this church who hold that conviction. And, and I'm not picking a fight in any way. I love them, and many of my theological heroes hold this position. But if everything that we've, I've read biblically, I think, in the New Testament, shows us that baptism is something that is portraying an individual's faith in Jesus. In fact, I think that's a clear implication of Romans chapter 6. It says that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. In other words, we're, we're acknowledging that Jesus died for us. We were buried with him by baptism into faith in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And so I think clearly, just as an implication of Romans chapter 6, baptism is something that somebody does after they have believed in Jesus. Now, my friends that believe in infant baptism link, I think, Old Testament circumcision and baptism together. And let me, let me just give you a verse. Go to Colossians chapter 2, and then, then we'll end with this and a few exhortations. Colossians chapter 2. And I want to I show you why I think that baptism should be something that people that are old enough to believe in Jesus should do. In Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, it says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Let me pause there and just say that in the Bible, I think there is clearly a kind of link between what's going on in the Old Testament with circumcision and what's going on in the New Testament with baptism. In the Old Testament, God is making a, a nation, an ethnic people, the Jewish people, and the way he's marking them off, the way he's identifying them is through circumcision. Now, there's a lot going on with what's going on in circumcision there. We don't have time to get into that. But the cutting away of the male foreskin at eight days of age of an infant, a Jewish infant, is the way that God marked off his people. So he's in the same way, in a similar way that baptism functions, that I just said about how, how the baptism makes the church, the new covenant community visible. Circumcision functioned in a similar way in the Old Testament. Circumcision meant to kind of mark off God's people to make them distinct from the other nations. And I think that there is a kind of similarity with how baptism functions in the New Testament. But although there's a similarity, I think there's also a clear dissimilarity. And I think that's exactly what Paul is getting at here in Colossians chapter 2. He is he's saying that there's a, a new covenant circumcision, not of the flesh, but of the heart, not something that you can do to yourself or to your child to make them part of God's people in a sort of external sense in the Old Testament, but something that only God can do. He, he can alone can circumcise your heart. In other words, he cuts away your flesh, your, your spiritual flesh, and, and makes you his own. And that's what he's saying. Look at verse 11 again. In him, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In other words, it wasn't some part of your body that was cut away. It was your heart that was cut. And God made you into his person by circumcising your heart, by the putting off of the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. And then verse 12 says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who, were raised, who raised him from the dead. So he's saying in baptism is portraying that this has happened to you through your faith 
in Jesus, which he gave to you. So I think what Paul is saying is, yes, baptism is functioned in the New Testament in a similar way to mark off God's people. But now it doesn't apply just out of ethnicity. It applies because you are trusting in Christ and infants can't yet trust in Christ. And so I think rightly administered baptism is speaking of those in the new covenant community, which is like, but different from the old covenant, people who are trusting in Christ. So I end with this. How should we respond? Are you a baptized Christian? You should worship God for your salvation, that Jesus bore the floodwaters of God's wrath for you. You should love your local body more. You should take baptism. We should take baptism more seriously. When somebody goes into that pool and they're baptized as a believer in Jesus and they become a part of Cross Point Church, just as they're united to Christ, they're united to you and now we collectively are responsible for one another. 1 Corinthians 12 says, how can the hand say to the foot, I have no need of you? Baptism is not just you viewing somebody else's proclamation of their personal experience. It's you in a local church saying we're together in this fight because the devil is real, sin is outrageously vicious, and eternity is forever, and we need each other. If you are a Christian and you have not yet been baptized, you should obey God and be baptized. You should get with one of the pastors and you should say, I need to be baptized. I think you should be part of this local church. If there's any obstacle, maybe it's shyness or some other thing that's impeding you from being baptized, let us sit down with you and plead with you to obey the Lord in baptism. And if you're not a believer in Jesus and you've listened to this kind of family discussion about this peculiar thing that Christians do, I pray that God would show you that your hope cannot be in yourself. That God's wrath and judgment rests on you. The floodwaters of God's righteousness is something that you cannot bear. You will die someday and you will stand before God and there will be a flood of God's righteousness that will come against your unrighteousness. What, who will bear that flood for you? The only one that can is Christ. And he has, he has dried up those waters for all those that would trust in him. Would you trust in Jesus today? And then I pray that in the coming days, weeks, months, that you too would be baptized so that you can proclaim that you're not trusting in your own righteousness to stand in the face of the river, the flood, the ocean of God's righteousness, but you are trusting in Christ's righteousness who has borne the penalty for you. Be baptized and be joined to Christ and his people. Let's pray. Lord, Make us more like Jesus, I pray. Make us more biblical. Make us love the gospel more. Make us take life more seriously. Make us love the church more as we understand this beautiful, this beautiful act of baptism that makes the gospel visible and makes the church visible for the sake of your mission that we would proclaim the goodness of Christ to all peoples everywhere. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.